Are you curious about, interested in, or working within the field of anesthesiology and you are a woman, person of color, or otherwise do not fit the stereotypical image of what an anesthesiologist looks like, then this is the podcast for you. We will discuss what life is like on the other side of the blue drape for us. Issues most relevant, such as what is anesthesia really? And we're not talking textbook definition. Tips for applying, success in residency, life as an attending, and beyond. Join us each week as we take a dive into this rich and often misunderstood field. This is your host, Dr. Alicia Peterson, and welcome to Sivo Sisters. Welcome back to Sivo Sisters, where we demystify and diversify the field of anesthesiology all within the duration of an anesthesia break. And this week, we continue with Dr. Ahi, where she will share with us her method for handling the haters that will catapult you as opposed to holding you back, as well as that moment where she had a crucial mindset shift that took her to new heights in her career in medicine. We're going to jump right into the conversation, into how she handles the naysayers. Please enjoy. Now I use naysayers as a way to galvanize my motivation. If I hear someone telling me that I'm not going to be able to do it, I work even harder now to do it. Because if I now I have something to prove. Now you just fired something up. That mindset took a while. I I really let the imposter syndrome weigh in more and take effect more earlier on in my journey. And I think that the confidence and the resilience is something that's grown through time. And so I don't also expect anyone to automatically have that. Know that it grows with time. I am so thrilled that the young medical student, OD, had in her the, let me just reach out, let me reach out, because that was the catalyst that sparked the rest of this. If you would have kept all this to yourself, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Uh, Because it sounded like you were pretty determined, like, look, I I got my plan, I'm going to do this, done. Now, just so I'm clear, did you end up doing that one-year research? Or did you, now that you did that elective there, it's like, you know what? I'm good. We're going to keep going. <laughs> no, I did the year. I did the year off in New York. I did that research. I needed the mental, I needed the mental break. Now, anytime I have a mentee coming to me, telling me about what they're thinking about with regard to planning, I always let them know that it's really important to, to plan their mental year off if they need something like that to be productive and to do it while they're in medical school. So they don't have to do the level of explaining I do to justify a non-traditional year off where you've graduated because the assumption is that you entered into the match and you didn't match. And so now, oh my gosh, you didn't match. And so there's a lot of assumptions that were made when I was applying to anesthesia residency and that I had to explain. So a lot of my interview invites didn't happen until a lot later in the season because if they were trying to work out if I even entered the match rather than me addressing up front that I didn't enter the match. I am in this year of research and I did that preemptively and 
I am now entering into the match for the first time. The very few who do decide to take that route, I do mentor them to let them know, listen, if you do do something like that, please let folks know ahead of time that this was something that was intentional. It's not that you did not match. It's that you chose to do it this pathway if you're going to do it a non-traditional pathway. But yes, I took that year off. It was so much needed. I not only was going through lack of social support, I had a lot of family dynamics that really lent itself to the lack of social support that was playing in while I was going to medical school, which made it so much so isolating. Seeing other folks who kind of have a stable family that is lending social support in a time that is just hard for anyone that would be walking the pathway of medical school. And then comparing myself to what I don't have and why there's not that sense of stability in my family that I feel like I have to go go at it alone. And by going at it alone, it really can culminate into a lot of burnout, which is essentially what happened to me. A huge amount of burnout way early on by trying to go at it alone. And I see how important it was for you to see the CA2 and CA3 that did look like you. Sounded like it really quenched that imposter syndrome to a great degree because you're like, I see living proof here that it can be done and I am worthy. Oh my gosh huge. Your type threat is real. If you happen to think that you're not going to score the way that you want to score and you go into that test, it makes a huge difference. I started anesthesia residency. I already had a couple of role models who looked like me, who were successful. When I started residency, my mind frame started shifting in such a way that I started believing that I did belong. There are still these micro invalidations that continue to happen no matter what in your environment. Then there was now this growing resilience that no, I am just as smart, if not probably smarter. There's something that's called the in-service exams, right? The ITEs that you take that kind of reflect how well you're going to do in the board exam when you're done with your anesthesia residency. I had gone from testing pretty much average on standardized tests to studying for that test in a very different way after seeing my role models. And let me tell you, that by the end of CA2 year, I was scoring above a 91st percentile on that IT exam. Only other person that was doing it in our residency program that had made those scores was another Black phenomenal resident, female resident, and a white male. And let me let you know that the rest of them, who mostly were non-UIM, we scored above them. Mm. Not even comparable. And I think that was uh, Dr. Cassie Armstead-Williams. Right. Yes, that was yes. that was Cassandra Armstead Williams. Yes, and I interviewed. Who was her. my co-resident? Yes, absolutely incredible. At what point so, did you decide that you were going to do pediatrics? Oh, I was interested in pediatrics when I was in medical school. I just didn't know how pediatrics is going to play out. I think in medical school, you may not know what type of specialty you want to do, but sometimes you get an inkling of the the population you want to serve. I was reflecting back and I thought, gosh, maybe I want to do pediatrics. Maybe I want to do neonatology, maybe OBGYN. And there was a common overlying theme there. There was definitely something that was drawing me. And so when I realized I was interested in anesthesia, I... I got excited because I knew there was a pediatric component. And so when I matched into anesthesia residency, I was already thinking I may want to do pediatric anesthesia. I think for me, the difference was when I was on my pediatric anesthesia rotation, which tends sometimes those cases go longer, I didn't mind as much, even though they were longer. I 
really enjoyed serving that population. So it started to feel less like work and something that I really could see myself enjoying doing. Don't get me wrong, pediatric anesthesia has its ups and downs. You have really incredibly sick patients that it's hard not to take it in when something bad happens, right? These are the most vulnerable populations. But when things go right, it feels good. On average, when I'm working with this population, it doesn't feel as much like work, more it feels like doing something that really fills your cup. I already had an inkling that that was where I wanted to go. And I feel privileged that I get to be a pediatric anesthesiologist where I get to take care of patients in a way that makes me feel privileged to take care of them. When a typical day is that you show up and you're already exhausted and this cute little four-year-old comes up to you and gives you a hug just for the sake of doing it before you put them off to sleep, that can fill your cup. I am so, so, so ecstatic that I did not drop out of medical school. It would have been a shame. Wouldn't it have been a shame? I'm so glad I finished. I'm so glad I just finally ended up doing what I love doing. And I haven't even gotten to the DEI component. UCSF, it's called a UCSF Bridges Coach Program where they had just started it. So I was one of the new cohorts where they were going to implement having 40 coaches paired with six medical students that they were going to follow all the way through when they graduated. So before that medical student even sees a cadaver, they were going to see your face. We were going to have a differences matter orientation where we talk about our lived experiences, our vulnerable identities, and really just connect. And then these six students would then be looking to you not only to teach them clinical skills, but looking to you as a career mentor because they've interfaced with you at least one day a week for their entirety of their career within medicine. I applied for that because I did not have that. If I had had this coach, I don't think my journey would have been the same where I was on the brink of dropping out of medical school. I wanted to have some type of impact, especially for those who are coming from marginalized backgrounds or disadvantaged backgrounds. I wanted to be a face because I knew how impactful it was to have a face. And then I merged after four years of doing that. I then moved on to a role of being the head of clinical skills for the joint medical program, where we're starting and developing an anti-racist curriculum within our clinical skills. So that is where I did some innovating and developing and still it's a work in progress. So that's my medical education path. Yes. And you were able to get institutional support for that. Yep. The School of Medicine pays 20% of your salary for the Bridges Coach position, as well as the head of clinical skills, joint medical. For the vice chair of DEI, how did that come about? I was deemed too junior. This is part of the narrative of when people tell you, nay, you work harder. So my predecessor, who was the vice chair of DEI, had gone off to be an associate dean of admissions. And there was a national call for this position where we had a lot of external candidates. And I think also some internal candidates. And at the time, I was an assistant professor and a lot of the people applying for this position was an associate professor. Mm. And so... I knew I was out of my element going for this position, but the difference, what carried me through was that I had been so involved within the DEI community already on a national platform. And so while I knew there were all these folks who were applying for this position nationally and internally who were 
full professors or associate professors, certainly not me who was an assistant professor on her way to being an associate professor. I, I was up for an associate professor. I had a lot of folks who were in doubt that I was going to get it. And so what they did is by making it a national position, you are you do the first round of interviews and you do the second round of interviews. And there were three of us who made it for the second round of interviews where we had to do a full day of interviewing with not only leadership, external leadership, but also give a one hour presentation to the entire department of what our visions are and what we want to do. And I was the last to go and I saw phenomenal presentations and it really had me in the background speaking with my social support system, thinking, I don't think I'm good enough for this. Like I look at who I'm up against. Thank goodness for my my social support, my family, where they literally were like, Odie, you just don't really see what you do. You do so much. You just need to talk about it. And having those people in my ear, just showing me all the things I've done, I needed someone to tell me what I do for me to feel like I was confident enough to go virtually to a department of well over 200 faculty members at the time to tell them this is why I think I'm good enough for the position. Took a lot of courage, I would say, in order to go for it. And I'm not going to lie, I was incredibly surprised I got it. I just knew who I was up against. I am incredibly grateful that I was given the opportunity. And when I was given the opportunity, I thought, okay, Odie, you had a lot of naysayers. Now it's time to show them that the key is networking. The key is showing up. The key is if someone asks you to do something, you find a way that it gets done in the beginning. And then you get to a place where you now start needing to learn how to say no, but I have another way that you can still get your needs met. It's a working progress. If you'd asked medical school Odie or college Odie where she saw herself or if she could even do this, I would have laughed at that person. So I this is just a call to anyone who's listening who may be thinking about medicine that don't let any naysayer tell you you can't do it. I certainly had them in my ear. Just go for whatever your passion is. If you want to do it, you can do it. Even if you're not getting the yaysayers, trust that you will get them down the road. Please, please, please just give it a go if you're interested because we need so much representation. I can't tell you how impactful it is when I walk in a room where there's someone who's marginalized and the parent, I see the smile, I see the relief. I keep talking to them about the plan and also getting more information about my little one that we're going to take care of. Still, there are parents that can't resist to say, I am so, so relieved. Thank you so much. I'm so, I know my, my child is going to be in good hands. And it's just that level of trust but you haven't really done anything to earn it yet, but just walking in and that communication and that trust that is being felt and expressed is huge. I have to really put in a plug for the need of representation in this field, especially not only just in PEDS anesthesia, just in all specialties. No, absolutely. And when you say you put in work, I mean, if we look at what Odie had done just for the ASA conference. I mean, was it at least, was it six? Five, five, five. five. <laughs> My gosh. Because many people just hope to get one thing and that's just for one conference. You're also involved in the Society of Pediatric Anesthesia and the Society of Education of Anesthesia, the SEA. And then also you have a global component. So you're not just nationally involved, but you have an international uh, presence as well. 
which we, again, didn't even get into. So (laughs) (laughs) as we are speaking right now, she is on her way to an award ceremony. So she is putting in the work. It sounds like though you are enjoying it. I feel so privileged. I do. I, I literally wake up every day and I'm just thinking to myself, I have a sense of psychological safety where I don't have to worry about where I'm going to get my food. I even in this time have psychological safety about I'm not going to be taken hostage. I wake up with privilege every day and I know it and I am thankful for it. And I really know that that is not the reality of so many people. Now the goal is to pay it forward. How do we pay it forward and bring 20 people behind us? And then those people bring another 20 people and it ends up being this exponential movement where we can really try to meet some equitable changes. Beautiful parting words. Well, I'll certainly include social media presence in the show notes to reach out if they have any additional questions, as well as if there's a Pathways program near them to look into that as well. And for any faculty listening, they can get involved and initiate such a process on their own. Just so glad you continued. Ah, we're all so blessed (laughs) by it. (laughs) But thank you so much again for, for talking with me and giving me the space to tell you my story. Too often, we forget all of the accomplishments and achievements we've made. And because of that, we end up with amnesia as to our greatness. This is why you should update your CV at least every month and every day write down the three wins that you have achieved for yourself. So you are constantly reminded of your greatness. It is necessary for us to shift from a mindset of thinking we're less than to one in which we are more than. We were made for this. We are more than capable of what we are asked to do. And once we recognize that we can then perform at our highest level, because you got it. You just have to take those blinders off and recognize your light. Join us next week as we talk about the future directions for this podcast in the coming new year. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Sivo Sisters. If you love this episode as much as I did, head on over and rate and subscribe so you don't miss out. New episodes drop every week on a Monday because we all can use a little something, something to get us through the week. Am I right? I'd love to hear more from you on the topics that you want to hear. So let me know in the comments. This is Dr. Peterson signing off. See you next time.